0: Hello and uh, good afternoon. Welcome to this podcast on Europe at a time of war. My name is Nicole Heller, and this is Reboot 2030, a democracy school podcast. My guest today is Roberto Castaldi. Roberto is a European Federalist. He holds a PhD in international relations in the area of European integration and is an associate professor of political philosophy at Ecampus University in Italy. He's also the CEO of the International Center for European and Global Governance, co-edits Perspective on Federalism, and is the general editor of Euractive Italy. I can see that Roberto is already here, so let me invite him in. Roberto, I already briefly introduced you. Thank you very much for uh, connecting with me here today and to catch up on the state of Europe. Europe at a time of war. Um, this is a kind of a, a difficult time uh, for you know a lot of, uh, of course, people across Europe, specifically, especially of course, uh, Eastern Europe and the Ukraine and and all that is happening there. But we'll, we'll come to that later. Roberto, uh, what we're seeing now is is that Europe is facing possibly for the first time in its in its in its history multiple serious threats. Um, you know, internally, you know, by right wing and uh, populist nationalists um, and externally because of the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, and other geopolitical risks. I mean, for example, China and, 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 and so on and so forth um, around the world. In addition, global warming and migration act within Europe as a fuel. It, you know, it, it really further massively exaggerates uh, these divisions along nationalists or populist versus liberal versus federalist lines. And it, at the moment, really looks increasingly like the, the populists and nationalists are gaining the upper hand, um, not really only at the sort of a member state level, but also at the European level. And there are European elections coming up before long. So, so this really is something to, to look into. Um, I mean, you've been following these developments closely. Um, should we be concerned? Um, and how significant are these developments? You know, how will they play out if current trends persist? Over to you.
1: Well, of course we need to be worried, uh, but uh, in, a, mm, in in an active sense, it's up to us, uh, European citizens, can decide uh, the way that Europe goes uh, through these uh, European elections. And I think that we should not underestimate the fact that the geopolitical challenges and the domestic challenges go hand in hand. Because on the one hand, the geopolitical challenges show that uh, uh, the member states are unable to guarantee the security of the citizens. In the European Union member states uh, together, spend for defense uh, basically almost as much as China, more than three times, as about three times as much as Russia before the war. Now, of course, Russia has increased dramatically its uh, uh, military expenditure, but the 27 together spend still more than about twice uh, as much as Russia. And we have no deterrent capacity. If we had, uh, Russia would not have invaded Ukraine. So we spend about thirty five percent of the US with a capacity of ten percent. Why? Because we have twenty seven useless national militaries rather than having one European defense. This is what uh, an example of what we usually call the costs of non-Europe. Non-Europe is very expensive. Non Europe is very expensive. There is a report that was coming out last month by the Research Center of the European Parliament about the costs of non Europe, which is about 6,700 euro per year per European citizen. So, if we had a European defense, if we had a European health policy like we did for the vaccines with the pandemic, if we had a European single market, a single capital market, If we had a European fiscal policy avoiding fiscal competition among member states, if we had a truly united and federal Europe, this would save us more than 3,000 billion euros, because the calculation was. So uh, 6,700 euro per European citizen. This is huge. So if the pro-European parties were willing and able and brave enough to campaign on this, I'm sure that the results of the election would be more favorable for the pro-European parties than for nationalists. Because nobody can be so stupid to be willing to keep uh, national sovereignty in fields where this national sovereignty is simply useless in order to spend more money and get less public goods. So this is the issue. And I think that this is linked together, the geopolitical challenges, because the Europeans today are praying. So there is a war in Europe, in Ukraine for two years. And in these two years, we have been unable to do anything to stop the war, not only to prevent the war, but to stop the war. We have been hoping that the US or China or Turkey or the Pope or whoever is passing by can make a proposal, a mediation or something like if we were not an actor because we are not an actor. Because we don't have a single foreign policy, but no member state is an actor that can make a mediation. So we are looking for somebody else to do something on a war that is in Europe. And the same is happening in Palestine and the Middle East. Europe is the largest trade partner for Israel and is the largest donor for the Palestine Authority. So we should have the leverage to do something, to mediate, to make some proposal. But we are unable to do anything at all. Why? Because we don't have a single foreign policy. We don't have a single defense policy. We don't have a European defense. So we are basically spectators of what happens in our doorstep, in our neighborhood. And still, people think that, well, you know, but uh, national defense is a crucial aspect of national sovereignty. There are polls that have come out in the recent months that show that 70% of the European citizens are in favor of a European defense. And there was, but <clears> the <throat> Europe. Not there.
0: Let, let me let, let me stop here for one second we're going to come to th- those points a, a bit later on in the conversation yes the i would like well, it's to just
1: an example yeah. because of the linkage between the geopolitics then we'll go on the defense more specifically but uh, to the, the linkage with this with the, with the election is important because the issue is that people are afraid of what is going on on the geopolitical level and on the other level. When we see the agricultural uh, protest today and the backlash against uh, uh, the Green Deal and the ecological transition and so on. I mean, on the one hand, we we had the the young people protesting because nothing was done against climate change. And now we have the agriculture that are protesting because they also need to change the way they produce food if we want to have uh, a, a net zero by 2050 so the issue is if this is approached at national level what happens that each national government just goes and asks the union please protect our farmers because otherwise we lose the elections Well, if we look at it at european level the agricultural policy has to fit in what we do within the green deal and of course you need to accompany this transition with funding. Of course, we do. But the issue is that this funding cannot be considered just uh, as a subsidy. I mean, when we do industrial policy, industrial policy is about uh, promoting investment. The same thing is for agricultural policy. If we, 30% of the European Union budget is the agricultural policy. I mean, if we spend that much money on agricultural policy, this needs to be, Incentivating investment for agriculture to become greener. There is nothing wrong with that. So the issue is that if we are able to frame the issue in a European frame, then everything becomes understandable why we are doing this or something else and how to approach this. And the other element is fear. People are afraid of change. This is normal, but the issue is that the public policy needs to reassure people that this change will not have bad consequences for them, because all changes always have a trade-off. You, there are always some winners and some losers, some good effect and some cost in a transition, even to a better situation. So you need to help people to cover those costs in order to ride the benefits of the transition. And this is how to frame the Green Deal, the industrial policy and so on. So the, 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 the point is that we have a narrative of fear by the nationalists and populists, and we have a narrative of hope, of future designing. So Europe is the level of government where we can design a better society, our future altogether, while the nationalists can only propose us to go back to a national sovereignty that is completely useless in the 21st century. And everybody realized that what state alone can solve climate change? Of course, none. Even Europe is small from that perspective. So we have chances. And also, we have the linkage between the external aspect and internal aspect in the fact that very often the nationalist parties are linked, financed, and helped by external actors. I mean, the, when uh, there are parties that uh, have a cooperation agreement with Putin's party, like the League in Italy, or who had got uh, financing from uh, Russian banks, like uh, Le Pen, Rassemblement uh, National, uh, and so on, it's clear that there is a linkage between certain uh, uh, nationalist group and uh, some external actors, like Russia, or in other countries, China, or the US, we shall not forget that uh, Bannon uh, came to Europe trying to create the international of the nationalists, of the populist parties and so on, to try and erode this bad liberal democracy and the European Union, which shall collapse because uh, it's a potential alternative to the US on the one hand and because it's the protector of liberal democracy in the member states with this conditionality and so on, blocking funding for uh, member states that uh, destroy the rule of law. Now, the European Commission is uh, unblocking 137 billion euros for Poland because the new government uh, is dismantling the reform of the judiciary of the previous government that destroyed the uh, judicial independence in Poland. So this shows how big was the effect uh, of the European Union blocking this funding. I mean, 137 billion euros is huge. Absolutely
0: let me, let me just come in here for a for a moment um, you you're absolutely right there's a and an, there's kind of two in fact there's more than two but that you can sort of reduce it to two sort of um if if you like uh, narratives a sort of a narrative that is sort of on the or, or, on on the sort of on the liberal centrist federalist side and a narrative that is on the populist um nationalist and indeed on the fascist side as well because obviously those 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 uh currents exist too. Now, um, we have these European elections come up. Um, and, and when you look at the kind of the, 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 the protests by farmers and so forth, you, you 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 will see that a lot of, you know, like, not just farmers, but, you know, a lot of the kind of howlets, you know, the kind of the, 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 the truck drivers, the lorries, basically, a lot of, if you like, uh, um, stakeholders that really have to go through fundamental change uh, yeah, in order to, you know, somehow meet or, or get closer to the kind of uh, uh, climate targets that we've set ourselves, they have aligned themselves or, you know, the, the far right has aligned itself with uh, those people. And there's a kind of a, um, a, a very, very toxic alliance building up, which is kind of sort of, if you like, a sort of a green, sorry, an anti-green fascist uh, a kind of alliance, which makes it very, very difficult for, you know, sort of like uh, sort of green campaigners, uh, green parties around Europe, um, and anybody with a green agenda, you know, you mentioned the sort of the, the, the green deal that's been totally, uh, uh, you know, uh, destroyed um, at, at the European level. And now, uh, so you have that, and you have the elections coming up now, what we might see in the next six months is a total like a very, very different Europe, a very different composition of the European Parliament. You know, it is not beyond possibility that the kind of the right wing forces will dominate a future European Parliament. I mean, we, you know, look at Italy, look at Poland, look at, you know, Hungary, look at Germany. This is
1: very unlikely.
0: Germany is massively on the rise. Look at Sweden, yes. look at Finland, look at France, look at Spain, you can go on. I mean, you know, the the, the far right parties are really are on the rise. And there is a, and and a lot of them have a well certainly a Europe critical and many of them an anti European agenda and aim for a sort of a league of nations you know to to replace the European absolutely. Union
1: absolutely absolutely but that's the 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 point that uh, you know, the polls of polls suggest that uh, even if they are on the rise they won't get a majority in European Parliament and the other aspect is that the issue is uh, if the pro European parties will be willing to take those arguments head on because people want to destroy the european union to go back to national sovereignty and so on and if the pro european parties were willing and able to do the campaign on this and not on other issue they would win because after brexit we had brexit brexit is the greatest political economic and social disaster of the 21st century
0: well, not everybody in the UK sees it this way. This is really fascinating. I mean, it's it yes. actually still fairly stable. Yes, the kind of the, 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 it's sort of slightly changed. They, There's more people now thinking it has been a failure, but it's not been a drastic shift. Um, and, and, yeah, and, but
1: there, there was a reason that uh, in politics, concomitancy is very important. The huge economic damage of Brexit was initially hidden by the pandemic, because it happened at the same time. So everybody had a dramatic economic slump because of the pandemic. The issue is that after the pandemic, the other recover, and the UK did not, because the UK had Brexit, and the other did not. So now people start realizing that, uh, well, maybe this is actually Brexit, and it was not just the pandemic. So now there is an increasing strong uh, uh, public opinion that realized that uh, Brexit was a failure. But around Europe, uh, people realized this very quickly. I mean, we can remember the images of uh, a supermarket in the UK without vegetables and uh, uh, without uh, medicines and so on because of Brexit. I mean, who wants to live in a country where you can get, it's difficult to get veggies or medicines because of the... uh, cut out their own uh, uh, chain of supply. So the, 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 the this was uh, b- beside all the other impact on uh, inflation, on uh, public finances, on economic growth, on foreign investment and so on. So Brexit was a disaster and uh, I think that everybody in Europe realized that. So even the nationalists that before used to call for their country to get out of the European Union, like Le Pen was for Frexit and Salvini and Meloni were for Italy exit and so on, nobody today speaks about quitting the European Union because everybody realized that without the European Union, they are done. And citizens, uh, this clear in mind after the pandemic. But what would have happened if it was not for the European Union? we would have had many less vaccines at a much higher prices because each European country would bid against the other with the big pharma to get the vaccines. While the fact that we had centralized the buying of the vaccines at European level has ensured that we were not having a competition between the richest European country and the poorer European countries, that everybody would receive their vaccine at the same time if they were poor or if they were rich, whatever country they were, and so on. So we got the vaccine quicker, in a massive supply, at a lower cost and in a fair fairer way. And all this was due to the to the European Union. And citizens realized that what would have happened to the, let's say, I'm Italian, what would have happened to Italy that was the country worst hit by the pandemic, if it was not for the next generation EU and the recovery plan, 200 billion euro provided to Italy in four years to recover from the pandemic slump, it was huge. So people today realize much more than in 2019, because the previous election were in 2019, the European Union is crucial. The issue is that all these challenges, all these crises make people afraid and they look for comfort, they look for security. And the pro-European have not been willing, able and brave to go out and campaign to say we need to complete European integration if you want to get protection. If you want a Europe that really protects you, and not just uh, on the, with the vaccines and the next generation EU, but also with the transi- green transition, the digital transition, the European defence and so on, we need to give Europe the means, the power, the competency to do that. I think that if the pro-Europeans go and campaign on this, they win. Because it's true that people are afraid, but are not stupid. They are afraid for good reason that they see that we don't count anything on the global scene confronted with this crisis. At the same time, the only one that make a proposal to defend them, even if in a stupid way, are the national. They say, we'll close the border, no migrants anymore. We'll keep the war at bay outside our borders and so on and so forth. This is nonsense, of course. I mean, Italy is the best example. We have now a very right-wing government. In the first year of this government, we had more than twice as many migrants as before. So, this tells us everything about how stupid their policy proposal about migration were. They said, vote us and we'll close the border, no migrants anymore. We have more than doubled numbers.
0: Well, it's so, interesting. It's interesting about it. Actually, the same, not, I don't know whether to the same extent, but uh, in the UK too, m- migration went up after Brexit. But that's That's an interesting point. But I think there's a danger in kind of always sort of saying, well, to look at this kind of binary alternatives in Europe or no Europe, because I think what is a far more problematic situation is that we're in Europe, but that Europe stops functioning entirely. Um, You know, for a whole host of reasons, if we have a very strong, possibly even a dominant nationalist bloc within the European Parliament, it's going to be very difficult to pass any legislation at a European level. So that's that's one thing. So there is this whole issue about dysfunctionality that will go up and will add to the problems and play into the hands of populists who will even more be able to say, you see, nothing happens, it doesn't work. Um, and they'll be able to undermine and at the same time criticize that it doesn't work so that's i think that is one thing that we have to be quite aware of the, the other thing is other, let me just to, to add this the other thing is 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 that so far uh, the eu has you know for all its flaws been a very positive force in terms of employment rights environmental standards, consumer protection, you name it, you know, anything from mobility to healthcare to this, that and the other. Um, now, if you have a right wing majority in the European Parliament, this could flip. So rather than Europe being that positive influence that we all know, it could become quite the opposite. It could drive climate change. It could basically liberate industry so that workers across Europe have less rights. It could force countries that are protecting their workers to stop doing so. Um, so, so there is this potential for Europe to turn in on itself quite apart from the risk of dysfunctionality. Maybe you can say a little bit about those two and how you see that develop and where you see the risk and challenges.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't think that there will be a right-wing majority in the European Parliament because the polls at European level suggest this is not the case. So I think that we will have again a majority between uh, the, EP, the EPP, the center-right, the liberal and uh, the over-renew Europe and the socialists and democrats and possibly the greens with them. So these will probably remain the majority of the European Parliament. At the same time, I think that the, the issue is uh, uh, it's up to the European citizens to decide with their votes what kind of European policies they want. So it is perfectly fair to have a center-left or a center-right uh, majority at the European level, and on the basis of that majority, you will have more left-wing or more right-wing policies at the European level the issue is that uh, uh, it's important that remains uh, the uh, uh, cordon sanitaire the, the limit to the fact that nobody is allowed into the european majority if they are against european integration itself cuz i mean you can always find uh, a compromise on a policy find uh, a balance uh, regarding the different uh, policies uh, right or left uh, if you agree that that policy needs to be done at European level, what you cannot find an agreement, uh, a compromise, uh, is uh, when you think that this policy should be dealt with at European level with somebody that thinks that no, this should be dealt at national level only. Because there is no comp- possible compromise at that point on the kind of policy to be done. So I think that uh, we are going towards a situation where part of the right wing. Uh, we we'll have to decide if they want to be influential on the European policies or if they want to remain nationalists. A party like Meloni, Fratelli d'Italia, for example, those right-wing parties that are in government. And once you are in government, you need to try to solve problems. You cannot just do propaganda. So, they realize that they cannot solve problems at national level, that they need to do certain things at the European level. Meloni used to be against European uh, Union, uh, asking sovereignty back and so on. Now that she's the head of the government, she's asking for the European Union to do more on anything, to do more on migration, to do more on defense, to do more on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Why? Because she's in government and she realized that she cannot do it. So, it's better if the European Union does it. So this kind of party. So she has a rhetoric and a propaganda against the youth, But then at the same time, she's asking you to do more all the time. So these parties will have to decide. If they leave aside their nationalism, they change their position on Europe. At that point, they can join the European majority and will be able to move further to the right, the compromise, the balance of the European policies on any issue. While if they stick to the ideological position that they are for national sovereignty, they don't want European sovereignty on migration, on fiscal policy, on foreign defense policy, they will remain out of the European majority and they will not be able to influence the policies of the European Union. So they have a trade off there. And I think that this will, what is likely is that we may find a split. In the, uh, in the right-wing parties during this legislature. So they go together now because it's important to have a European family and to pretend that they will be strong, will become an important group that will be relevant and impactful and so on. But at the end of the day, they will realize that if that group keeps a nationalist position, they won't be able to influence any policy. At that point, some of them may decide that we better we, we, we better serve even our national interest by taking a pro-European stand and influencing European policy than maintaining a nationalist one and being unable to influence European policy. Because they may like it or not, but the most important policy decisions are taken at European level. This is the contradiction of today's world in Europe, that the policies are decided mainly at European level, but the politics the political competition is mainly run at national level. So, citizens basically look at what national parties say, but what matters is what they decide actually at European level. I mean, the Green Deal, which uh, influences all kinds of policies from heating to transport to agriculture to industrial policy, this is decided at the European level, not a national level. When we think about the Chips Act, the in- Artificial Intelligence, Act, all these kind of things that are regulating the future. All of this is not done at national level. It is done at the European level only. So I think that we are today in a situation that people can realize that what happens at the European level is very impactful, provided that the pro-European parties are willing and able to campaign on that and to campaign on the success of the European Union. I mean, in this legislature, 2019-2024, the European Union did, the vaccines. The next generation EU with the first common debt for the first time. The European Central Bank poured over 2 uh, trillion euros to save member states uh, during the pandemic and finance their efforts. So, I mean, we have seen, and the European Union was able to answer the Russian invasion to Ukraine, with a number of 13 now packages of sanctions and uh, military help and so on. So without the European Union, would we better off? I think that this legislature should prove very well that we would be worse off without the European Union. The issue is if the European parties, the Socialists, the Liberals, the Christian Democrats, are they going to fight? Are they going to campaign for Europe? Because it looks that while the nationalists are happy to campaign against Europe, they play on the attack, the pro-European play defense only. They are saying, oh, but, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, nobody can be convinced by saying that something is not that bad. You need to show why it's good and how it can be better. And that's the challenge for the pro-European parties, that we should challenge them every day. Tell us the truth about the cost of Europe, about what European Union did this uh, uh, legislature, about what we could do if we were more united on fiscal policy, on the defense, and so on and so forth, on energy. And energy is the best example on, um, for certain aspects because we had a big energy crisis. And now that the prices have come back, come down a little bit, this has come out of uh, the public view. But in Europe, we pay energy two to three times as much as China and the US, which are our main competitors. Our industry, our economy, will not prosper long if we pay energy, which is essential for all production, for all transport and so on, twice to three times as much as China and the US. So we are done. But if we add a single European energy grid, the price would go down 32%, according to a study of the University College of Dublin. 32% 32% only if we had the European energy grid, because we would be allowed to exploit wind energy from the north in winter and solar energy from the south in, in in the summer and so on. And by being able to move the energy throughout Europe, where it's produced and so on, we would be able to have more energy at a cheaper price and a reduction overall of 32%. If we had a European strategic reserve like the U.S., if we buy the energy, we are the largest energy importer in the world. I mean, when there was the invasion of Ukraine, we had a terrible spectacle. We could see all the foreign ministers of each European country going to the same African countries to negotiate new deals to import more energy. And these countries were so happy because they could make the price. Because if you don't sign this price today, Italy, okay, tomorrow we'll give it to Spain or to Germany. So they make the price. But they, I mean, when we think about gas, gas doesn't move uh, uh, without the pipeline. I mean, you need to have the pipeline. The pipeline from Africa go to Europe. So you can send it to Italy or Spain or Germany, but all, only to the European Union, because that pipeline comes here. So, if we had sent just European Commissioner for Energy and said, look, we'll buy all this energy, but at this price, otherwise, we don't buy it, I mean, we would make the price. And we will not be forced to pay twice to three times as much as China and the US. So, we could do so many things that benefit the European citizen if we only were united. It's amazing. But the issue is that the political parties are not campaigning on the offensive, showing what we could do if we were united. And we can see it where when we are. Because what we did for the vaccines, we could do it for the energy, we could do it for the military military equipment, and so on and so forth. So we have plenty of uh, areas of policies where, by being uh, divided, we continue to spend a huge amount of money for nothing. While we could have much less expenditure for much better public goods if we were united, so this is something that everybody can understand very easily. And if, with this report by the European Parliament, it provides ammunition for the pro-European parties if they are willing to use them.
0: I, I think I think about uh, uh, the line of argument you're taking is really uh, viable. It, it's to, as you said, you know. Uh, a narrative of hope versus a narrative of fear. And I think this is really, I think in terms of the upcoming European election that is absolutely key. Um, I, I just, i am I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, well, we'll see whether that works uh, because of course, I've, I mean, I when I look back at the UK and there was, again, there was a sort of, a, sort of a, a, they actually had it the other way around almost. There was this sort of narrative of hope among Brexiteers Uh, And there was this narrative of fear of the pro Europeans, all the bad stuff that would happen if you leave the EU. Of course, much of that actually has happened and worse. But but of course, it was again, it was fear versus hope, uh, except the other way around uh, in in the case of Brexit. Now, what's interesting is, is I mean, I just when I look at Germany and when I look at the kind of arguments that have been put forward uh, at a local, at a regional and at a national level, the technocratic arguments, the kind of economic arguments, the kind of empirical arguments, don't really seem to catch fire. Uh, what does catch fire is a different, a sort of a much more identitarian narrative, a, a very different kind of narrative, um, that is seems to be much easier for people to relate to, to, to identify with. Now um, I, I hope that the narrative, hope that you're sort of sketching out here, will catch on and will be a sort of will lead in in the European elections. But, but when I look at, for example, at Poland or at Hungary, it is quite it's quite um, it's quite worrying how quickly even a democracy can be um, turned into a quasi-authoritarian system. When you look at the US, what might happen there if Trump gets reelected, um, and how that might restructure the US towards an authoritarian system. I wonder, um, would such a thing be in your view be possible at a European level? I mean, this is a kind of a thing, uh, you know, if you're right, and if the kind of the far right kind of populist remain a minority, it's all for nothing. You know, we, you know, we're lucky, we're kind of plain sailing. But if that isn't the case, uh, if we're back in 1928, uh, you know and not in 1928 Germany mind you but in 1928 Europe you know where you also had Franco and you had Mussolini and you had Hitler and, and then you had, you know so it was not just a German thing and again now it's not just a German it's or Italian or whatever or Polish or Hungarian it's a pan you have in fact a global sort of current that is kind of sweeping across Europe and if that current has that sort of the, uh, the tailwinds that it seems to have how dangerous Could that be for the European project?
1: Very dangerous, of course. But uh, uh, I would like to take uh, a different comparison. And this comparison is India. India is a strange country. uh, In the sense that uh, it was created as a democracy by the Mahatma Gandhi. And it was one of the poorest countries of the world. And most of the poorest countries of the world, one way or another, had an authoritarian term. Because when you have millions of people that die by starvation every year, it's very difficult that they will accept uh, that they keep a democratic government in place. But India did. And why did India remain democratic, even if it was so poor and with so millions of people starving every year? And the reason was that it was a federal uh, system. Because to change uh, India, uh, to make an authoritarian turn in India, you need uh, not only to get control of the federal government, but also of the state government, which is very difficult. And I think that from that perspective, the European Union, being uh, still not a fully fledged federal system, but a partially federal system, because it's a multi level system of government is our best insurance against authoritarian terms. Because on the one hand, it's when you have an authoritarian party that gets the upper hand at national level, you will see the European Union trying to make resistance. Like you had peace taking away the judicial independence and you had the European Union blocking 137 billion euro funding. which probably played a role in having the opposition winning the election uh, last uh, uh, autumn in Poland. So uh, the European Union makes it more difficult to have an authoritarian turn into the member states. At the same time, it's difficult to have an authoritarian turn at the European level, because to change the the rules at the European level, you need the consent of the member states. And the other member states where the, the authoritarian forces in government would not accept to uh, reduce the liberties, the freedom, the rule of law at the European level. Furthermore, it's uh, um, very difficult uh, for the nationalists to agree on anything. They have a negative agenda. They agree in saying no to this, no, not to that, no to Europe, uh, no to migrants, uh, no to vaccines, uh, no to something else, no to the Green Deal. But when you try to see what is their agenda, the positive agenda, what kind of policies they want, they have none. The best example is identity and democracy, group in the European Parliament. Now there are the European elections and they don't have a manifesto for the election. Why? Because their manifesto is and their status says that each member party, each national party, votes the way they like, and the, the the responsibility of the whip is only to ensure that each delegation, national delegation, votes as their national party says. So even if they vote each against the others, well, that's fine. I mean, we so they. In their own statute, they recognize that they don't have an agenda. They cannot make any policy. So why should a reasonable person vote for somebody who doesn't have an agenda? You don't know what they want. You only know what they don't want. They don't want migrants. They don't want Europe. They don't want the Green Deal. So they don't want to deal with climate change, which will kill your children and grandchildren. Is this what you want? They don't want migrants, but their policy to prevent migrants are a failure. Once they go to government, migrants are twice as much as before. They don't want a European sovereignty, but with your national sovereignty, Putin will invade Ukraine and maybe, afterward, other countries. Because if we were acting alone, nobody would be able to help Ukraine, and we would be done in a short time. So their agenda is completely nonsense. So. I think that uh, from that perspective, also what you said about fear and hope is very relevant, because in the u k hope won it was a wrong hope because the 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 Brexitee were lying yeah mean when they said uh, with the outside Europe we would have a hundred and fifty billions per week for the NHS we
0: it a 50 was a lie was but yes, absolutely yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a lie. And in fact, today the NHS is in the worst situation ever. And there was, a, there is so much discussion in the UK how it is possible that the national health system is so bad. No? Because it was a lie. So it was a lie, but it was framed as hope, while the, rem- the remainder were based on uh, the status quo is not so bad. So my issue is precisely the same. On the one hand, you are those that are running over fear, but the others are not running on hope. They are not presenting a strong project. That's what they should do. If they do, the pro European will win because the pro European project is in the interest of everybody in Europe. I mean, you have to, and this is also about identity politics, the other crucial element you mentioned. Uh, A great uh, uh, British historian, Arnold Toynbee, suggested that the Europeans today. Are like the Greek of the polis of the Hellenic civilization and the Italians of the Renaissance, divided among many small city-states, Florence and Rome and Venice and so on and so forth. These two great civilizations had a simple choice unite or perish. And both of them died. Because the Greek were told by Aristotle that the police was the natural venue of the political, economic, and cultural life. So compared to the Macedonian and then Roman Empire, they didn't manage to unite, and they were conquered. The Italian of the Renaissance, the same thing, compared to the first modern state, France, Spain, Algeria, but they had a simple choice. But they thought that Europe, Italy, was a geographic expression, just like Metternich said a few centuries afterwards. So they didn't unite. And even if the Hellenic civilization was the top at the time, and the Renaissance civilization was the top in Europe at the time, both of them collapsed because they didn't unite. Today, we are in the same situation. In the global world today, only continent-wide states have the resources to maintain their competitiveness, their security, to invest, to maintain a role. So there is the US. There is china there will soon be india we have to decide if we want to remain an actor in the world or to be the field of the competition for the other actors so europe has to decide do we want to be the pitch or we, do we want to be one of the team that plays uh, in the tournament?
0: I think this is a very good point to kind of move on to my, my last two questions. And you, we actually almost, we started off with that. And I was sort of trying to kind of pull you back a bit. But I want to come back to that. And and, and the, the first one really has to do with sort of eastward expansion of the European Union. I mean, obviously, Ukraine really is desperate to join the European fold. Uh, Moldovia would... Like to join Europe as well, and and what kind of there have been accession agreements uh, with both of those countries now. And we know how this can go. We, you know, look, look at Turkey. I mean, um, but, um, but, but at the same time, the ambition is there, and the situation is very, very different from Turkey, uh, because of the threat uh, with Russia and all the rest. How do you judge? I mean, what is your assessment of that kind of expansion and potential? Sort of integration uh, of those of those countries into the European Union. Uh, do you think that's a realistic and kind of a desirable even uh, 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 ambition, or is it just kind of, you know a pipe dream?
1: We don't know yet. The truth is that uh, uh, it's very difficult for those countries to join the EU, especially if there is the the war there and Russian troops on the territories, because this is the case for both of them. Everybody remembers the war in Ukraine, but also in Moldavia, there is a region that is occupied by Russian troops. So so that's the the, uh, first issue. The other aspect is that the European Union needs to reform itself to uh, be able to accommodate new countries, because we already, the European Union, we can see already that the European Union doesn't work well because of unanimity. We have unanimity on foreign policy, on security policy, on defense policy, on fiscal policy, on the budget, on sanctions, on all these most important things we decide by unanimity. We don't manage to get unanimity with 27, and very often we don't get it because countries uh, are using their veto just to get uh, some compensation on completely different dossier that doesn't have anything to do with it. So, unanimity doesn't work. We need to get rid of unanimity before we let anybody in. So we need to reform the treaties. And uh, the European Parliament made a proposal to reform the treaties. Last November was approved by the plenary. And now the European Council is supposed legally to decide if to uh, examine those proposals by calling a European convention to reform the, the treaties. So uh, that, that's the big, uh, uh, the big issue. And, uh, of course, uh, let's make a, a mind game, a mind experiment let's think for a second that today ukraine was a member state of the european union with the current rules now ukraine for good reason i mean mean, let's say the war is finished we don't know how it doesn't matter but the war is finished in ukraine ukraine is a member of the european union which is uh, with the existing rules. now basically any ukrainian would have had uh, somebody in his or her family killed or wounded or uh, something else because of the war. Anybody in his or her family will have a killed or wounded or something, uh, or uh, having fled, exiled, whatever, from, from Ukraine. So in that country, to get any form of cooperation with Russia would be unacceptable. I mean, for good reason. At the same time, for Europe as a whole, Russia is our neighbor. If the war is finished, we will need to find some form of security organization in Europe. We cannot just have an enemy at our doorstep without having creating any cooperation agreement, any security agreement, anything at all. So Europe would have the deed to establish some form of relationship with Russia, and Ukraine would put a veto on anything in order to have its way on the only things that matters, that is not to have any form of cooperation with Russia. Because any Ukrainian government that accepts to have any form of cooperation with Russia will lose the election. So this is an ex- mind experiment, but it's very easy. I mean, everybody can understand what unanimity would do if we were to enlarge now. It would completely paralyze the European Union. So Is enlargement to Ukraine and Moldavia desirable? Of course it is, in the sense that if those countries want to join the European Union and are democracies, why shouldn't they be allowed to join the European Union? At the same time, the European Union needs to be prepared for the enlargement by getting rid of unanimity in the whole decision-making system. Because otherwise, the enlargement risks to be just the, the, the start of the destroy the union
0: can i just can i just uh, at this point go back once more very briefly to an earlier point in our discussion which i thought was a really interesting one and you sort of said our best defense against a sort of a a shift into authoritarianism is the fragmentation and the you know the 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 kind of the, the fact that the eu isn't yet a fully integrated federation um now unanimity would actually bring us a significant step closer to that. Um, yeah. You know, I give you just to make this point. I mean, I um, for many years I have been on and off been active in the kind of the, the kind of the refugee or no borders movement, and so on and so forth. And the the, the Geneva Convention uh, on 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 refu- you know, refugee convention uh, is, is is very imperfect because it's a very narrowly drafted. Convention to protect refugees, and the definition of refugees is very narrow. For example, it excludes any form of, you know, c- you know, climate-induced uh, migration and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's been a, a, a sort of a, a lively debate whether, you know, whether the kind of the Refugee Convention from 1951 needs reforming. And but there is a consensus that if we would open this convention up now, it would actually get watered down. It would be worse than what we had before because of the way people feel about refugees and migration at the moment. So everybody's saying, well, don't touch it. Um, Now, I wonder, you know, just, you know, with the European Union, given the kind of, you know, the forces at play at the moment, isn't there a similar argument one could make and say, don't touch it. If we integrate any further, we're just basically handing power to the nationalists and to the, you know, the kind of authoritarian.
1: Well, I think that people don't trust democracy enough. In, the European citizens had the chance to express themselves with the Conference on the Future of Europe. And the proposal they made out of the Conference on the Future of Europe was to strengthen the European Union, to give it more powers, more competency, to streamline the decision-making, to de- get rid of unanimity. So I think that uh, if there was a reform, and was uh, um, the, the issue of the reform is how you ratify it. If you make a good reform and then you want national ratification, you are creating incentive to kill it. Because if you ratify, nothing changes. You do what the governments have decided. While if you kill it, everybody will come and ask you what you want in order to ratify or whatever. So I think that the issue is that we need a reform that institute a European referendum, like the Conference on the Future of Europe proposed, and that that European referendum used to ratify the new treaty. That referendum should be with double majority. You need a European majority, but also a national majority in a majority of member states, in order to recognize the fact that the union is a federal system, that is a union of citizens and of states. So you need a double majority, both of citizens and of states. Of course, if you get both, the treaty is ratified. It means that you may still have some countries where there was a national majority against ratification. In those countries, they should vote again within six months to decide if they want to ratify or leave the union. At this point, they can make so nobody is obliged to stay in the union if they don't want to, but nobody can block everybody else to go ahead in further integration if the other want to, because if you want your national sovereignty to be uh, uh, saved, you need to. Ensure that also national sovereignty of the others is saved. So, if you have these double majorities ratify, the other revolt within six months to decide if they want to ratify or leave. I believe that after Brexit, nobody can be stupid enough to vote for leaving the European Union. And uh, um, and I think that it's time to reform the union. That it, there is a strong case to reform the union to get rid of unanimity. People can understand this. The issue is just if there are leaders that are able capable, brave enough to tell the truth. We cannot deal with this issue at national level. We need to deal with this issue at European level. And to do that, we need to get rid of unanimity. Otherwise, we're never able to decide. So these are very simple things to say, because it's clear to see. And this is true for the military, where we spend 35% with the US with 10% capacity, which means that, uh, basically, over two-thirds of our military expenditure is useless. So the money we are spending for the defence is useless. to first of these. This is huge. And, and so, so there is a huge case for reforming the Union. I think that citizens are intelligent enough to make the right choices if they are provided uh, with a good uh, uh, explanation, narrative and so on. So it's up to the pro-European parties and leaders to make the case for a stronger Europe. They have a strong case, a much stronger case than the nationalists. They should just use it and present it properly.
0: I, I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear this, because it is a sort of a defense of democracy, you know, You know. and, and, and there is a sort of a knee-jerk reaction that you might see where people sort to of say, well, you know, like at the time when democracy is under threat, don't make it even more democratic, because it makes it also more majoritarian, which may just kind of give more power to populists. But, you know, but of course, you're countering that. You're saying, well, let's trust the common sense of people. And, you know, you know, let that. So I, I think it's a fine a balanced argument. But I totally I actually on the final analysis, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I would kind of go for the same thing. It's just it's it's one of these things, you know, when people sort of think, well, should we is this the right point to do away with uh, unanimity, you know, where a single sane country, could stop a majority. Could stop a majority of fascist countries from going over the edge. You know. You know. And, and we're sort of saying, well, okay, let's let's play this. Let's trust it. Let's just hope that that majority never materializes. So, so yeah, no, absolutely. But going on to the last, you want to come in here?
1: No, I don't know. I'm wait for a question.
0: Uh, okay, so going on to the last, the the, the 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 last question here, which has to do with. And we have started off there and you have said a lot of interesting stuff there already, the European defense issue. Um, sort of given the current political environment and the sort of focus on national interest. I mean, in the previous podcast when we, the, the two of us talked, you made a very interesting point about the hundred billion Germany is setting aside. Uh, as a sort of a, 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 a sort of a, a, an additional investment, in addition to the kind of you know roughly two percent of GDP that it wants to invest as well. Now there are now courts in Germany to triple that, uh, like like within the kind of the Christian Democratic Party, uh, um, the, the the chair of the subcommittee on the defense. Uh, he's basically well, let's triple it to three hundred billion. Uh, so th- th- these numbers that go up and we're kind of in the middle of a kind of an arms race, really, when you think about it. But the problem, of course, and you made this point very forcefully uh, previously, is, is if governments and the German government in particular here thinks about this as a national issue and invests that 100 billion or maybe 300 billion in a national defense force, when it could really kind of also contribute significantly more to a European infrastructure, then actually it may be counterproductive. Um, but that's what I see happening. I see very, very little. The other thing is, is Macron came out, and I'm sure you must have heard that as well yesterday, that he would even put boots on the ground, soldiers, that he would not, you know, he would allow that as a possibility. He didn't say he wants to commit to it, but he said, let's not take it off the table. And of course, alarm bells went off across Europe today. I so said, they're saying, oh, hang on, you know, we're, we're not going to put, uh, you know, German or, you know, whatever, uh, Swedish soldiers. Um, uh you know in Ukraine but this is exactly what uh Macron alluded to uh, yesterday um in Paris um so so th- these are so we have a situation where you know national players you know the, the president of France you know the German government make a very sort of national focused decisions without really kind of coordinating with their partners um and within that environment we are desperate for a more integration at a, at a defense level how do you see especially as this whole thing heats up I mean Europe has so far never delivered on the weapons it promised you know you know it, it has it, it simply isn't able to kind of catch up with the demand um so and and so so the pressure is building up um and it is also losing credibility and at the same time there's increasing demand for some kind of coordinated response how, how do you how do you think this is going to play out and and what do you think should happen?
1: Well, they, you, you are absolutely right. The issue is that it's approached at national level. There is no coordination. Everybody say whatever they want. And the result is that we are not able to do what we promise because we are not are really acting at European level. So what would the European defense look like? We need to address four issues. First, what kind of military apparatus we want to have at European level. So what is the military apparatus that we pull together? And uh, what kind of uh, model of defence? We probably have uh, a dual defence, that is a small European uh, capability with a strong coordination of the existing national army, with specialisation of these armies and so on, and a centralised level of uh, equipment providing so that we stop having. Ten The U.S. have one kind of tanks, uh, we have seven tanks. Doesn't make sense in economic terms and so on. They have three planes and we have ten planes and so on and so forth. So this is the reason why our expenditure is so ineffective and uh, unproductive. So if we centralize all these things, everything starts working. And the United States at the beginning, they also had a dual army. They have a very small federal army and strong national militias. And these remained the same until after the, the Civil War. And the Civil War was possible precisely because the federal army was very small and the national militias were very big. Um, so we'll probably have this kind of model. We need to decide how to finance it and with ca- what kind of governance. The governance, in order to be effective, we need to get rid of unanimity. It needs to be under the uh, control of the commission, turning into a real federal government. And we can finance it in different ways. We can do, like in the Monetary Union, where we pull together 20% of the reserve of the national banks. We can say, okay, we pull together 20% of the national budget for defence, or we can uh, have a, a dedicated budget financed by European uh, uh, fiscal policies or euro, euro bonds and so on, or we can have a golden rule saying, okay. Uh, The money that you take at national level, you put it into the European Defense Fund, European Peace Facility, and European Joint Industrial Project through the Permanent Structural Cooperation on Defense, these are taken out of the calculation of the Stability and Growth Pact. So, this way you are creating an incentive for the member states not to invest on the national defense but on European defense. So, or you can have a mixture of all the three. So, the there can be different ways to do it. The problem is the political will to do it. And ultimately, the issue is you cannot have a European defense if you don't have a European foreign policy. Because the the army, the defense, is an instrument of a foreign policy. And to have a foreign policy means that you are represented as such in the main international organization and international arena and so on. So just like the Monetary Union essentially was the Europeanization of the Deutsche Mark, the Foreign and Defence Union, ultimately, are the Europeanization of the French seat at the UN and the French force, de frappe. Because you cannot have a European defence with an, a member state that has a nuclear deterrence that doesn't cover the rest of the Union. And you cannot have a European foreign policy if in the main international organisation there is France and not Europe. So, ultimately, the issue is, is France willing to recognize the fact that alone is unable to play a role on in international arena, that's the issue. That's the the point is Macron. I mean, when Macron said we are uh, maybe should not take off the table that we want to put boots uh, in Ukraine, okay. But is France the country that has been helping Ukraine more with military equipment? No. And when it was asked why you are not giving more, I mean, Denmark is giving more than France. Uh, and they say, because we cannot uh, take away our stocks and so on and so forth. So that's the answer. I mean, we have to go for this. I, mean, I sometimes I'm afraid, I, I really cannot understand. After two years of war in Ukraine, what else should happen before we start uh, creating a European defense? I mean, we had Trump saying that he would not defend NATO countries from Russia if they are not uh, putting 2% of their GDP on the uh, on fence. So, what are we waiting to create a European defence? We are like uh, um, those animals that when there is uh, uh, some uh, threat, they put their head under the sand. And that's nonsense. We need to get real. We have the capacity to deal with the issue. Draghi said this very clearly at the uh, ECOFIN, the meeting of the Economic and Financial Minister. We need 500 billion euro of investment every year for the digital transition, the environmental transition and defence. No member states have the fiscal uh, way to do that. We need to do it at the European level altogether, creating the European single uh, capital market uh, in order to use also private uh, uh, saving to channel this to proper investment in Europe. Because today we have more than 200 billion euros of European savings that go to the US every year. So we would have the the financial capacity, but we are not exploiting it because we don't have the single capital market. We don't have a European safe asset like euro bonds and so on and so forth. So we have the capacity. One of the things that gets me very angry is that when we discuss things, Europeans always feel that they are poor, unable to do anything, and uh, hoping that somebody else will take care of things. We are one of the richest area of the world, in the richest civilization in world history. There was nobody in the history of mankind that had the kind of wealth that we have. In the amount of things each person in Europe possess, cars, mobile phone, uh, everything is amazing. There was nobody. In the history of mankind, and the, the kind of wealth we have, right? the issue is how we decide to use it. It's not that we are, don't have the resources to do things, we have all the resources we want, provided we decide to use them properly. And if we, I mean, when Putin thinks that we are a decadent society because we spend more for enjoying ourselves, uh, drinking, uh, smoking, drugs. Uh, Enjoyments than what we use for investment, education, and research. I mean, he has a point, unfortunately, but it's up to us. I mean, our grandparents after the war were very poor and saved a lot in order to give their children a better chance. So they saved a lot and invest a lot to create a better country for their children. We are very rich and we spend everything we have. Now it's up to us. So there is room for the Europeans to solve their problems. There is chance, provided they act together. Alone we are small, but united we are strong. And I would like to close with a famous sentence that is often used against Europe, but it should be, actually be used in favor of Europe. When people say that Europe is an economic giant, a, a political dwarf, and a military worm. So this shows that Europe is strong and member states are weak. Because where we have pulled sovereignty on economics, Europe is a giant. Where we have kept national sovereignty on foreign and defense policy, we are dwarf or worm. So when this is used against Europe, this should be used against the member states. Because when we pull sovereignty at European level, on those uh, policy areas, we are giant. We are the largest trading partner for everybody. We are the largest trading bloc in the world, the largest market and so on. Where we keep national sovereignty, we are dwarf and worm. So this shows that national sovereignty is the enemy. Because the truth is that we have this wrong view of sovereignty. Sovereignty is not national. Sovereignty is of the people. And the people's sovereignty can be exercised at different level of government, at city level, at regional level, at national level, and at European level. You can exercise this sovereignty at different level on the basis of different policy areas. There are policy areas that can be well covered at communal policy. I mean, when you are doing differentiated uh, uh, rubbish, uh, you know, recycling and so on, this can be done at the local level, better than European level to decide which days you are going in each area of the city. So uh, for this problem, your people's sovereignty can be better expressed at the city level. But for foreign and security policy in the global world, it doesn't make any sense to have it at national level because it condemns us to be nothing at all on the international arena. We need to move that to the European level. So this is not to say that national level is always useless. There still are a lot of policy areas that can be dealt with the national level. We have different cultures, different languages, which means that the educational system, cultural thing, these all should be dealt with the national level, not at European level. But there are certain policy areas where the only possible level where this sovereignty can be exercised effectively is the European one. And we should pull sovereignty on those policy areas because otherwise we are done.
0: Excellent. Uh, This was this was a very powerful sort of closing statement here um and um i'm very grateful for you to uh, to be uh my guest again today we've slightly overrun but then we had difficulties in the beginning so i'm glad we kind of got the full hour uh Beto, thank you ever so much it's always really really interesting talking to you and of course europe and i you know everybody can sense that it's very close to your heart um so it's it's really really nice and, and I, every time we talk i learn an awful lot so it's almost like my private little um university here so uh Roberto, thank you ever so much. It's been a great pleasure to have you. And let's stay in touch and, you know, catch up at some point in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.